Psalm 86, beginning at verse 6. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Give heed to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble I shall call upon you, for you will answer me. There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord. There are, nor are there any works like yours. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. Father, we're so grateful for the truth of your word. Whenever we feel overwhelmed, whenever we feel confused, whenever we feel abused, we can go to your word to see the truth that speaks to us because the word of God is eternal. Forever it has been settled in heaven. And so, Father, I just pray that you will speak to us this morning from the pages of your scripture and from the lives of these individuals who lived on the land that you had promised to them 4,000 years ago. Well, Father, I pray that uh, we will not just be hearers of the word, however, but we will be doers also, that the word of God will so permeate our being that our thoughts are in tune with your thoughts and our desires with yours. Keep us focused, Lord, on your plan for our lives and pray that every day, in some way, we will touch another life with the word of encouragement, with the word of conviction, whatever it might be that is needed. And Lord, keep us strong in believing you for the work that you're doing. Thank you, Lord, for this day, for the work that you're going to do uh, throughout this campus this day as the word of God is proclaimed in the services and in the various Sunday school classes. In Christ's name, amen. amen. We've been looking at kind of a what should I call it, uh, a bit of a summary or survey, but we're going to uh, overview the land of Israel for, in a 4,000-year in a period, and, and just over the 4,000-year period, in just a brief moment in time here, before we uh, get going in the book of First Kings. I think in order to better understand First Kings, though, it, it's good to kind of see the context, as I mentioned to you before. So we've been looking at the land from the time of the promise that God gave to Abraham that he would give to Abraham's descendants the land which was called then Canaan. That was named after Ham's son Canaan. Remember Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the three men that were on the ark with Noah and his wife? Ham, one of his sons, was Canaan. And through him came the Canaanites, uh, various tribes of people that are often listed with the ite at the end, you know, the Girgishites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and so forth, the generically Canaanites. And the land, of course, would eventually become known as the Kingdom of Israel, and then the Romans would rename it as Palestina, or Palestine, and it would be continued to be known as Palestine all the way up until this very day. In fact, people who are quote, native there, call themselves Palestinians, right? And, but a nation was founded there in 1948 called the Nation of Israel. And so Israel has returned, but it's back in the midst of Palestine. And so you've got this conflict. And so the question is, why, why do we have this conflict and what are the roots? Well, the roots go all the way back to Abraham, as we have uh, noted. I'd like to say something about Isaac now. Abraham had uh, two sons, one named Ishmael and the other named Isaac. And Isaac is the one we usually know the least about. 
because there's a least in Scripture about him. There's lots about Abraham. There's lots about Jacob. Just a small amount about Isaac. Because Isaac's two greatest contributions to Israelite history were, first of all, to marry his cousin Rebekah from Paden Aram, and then to father twin sons, Esau and Jacob. That's basically his main contribution. Oh, there, there are some other things that when we studied through the book of Genesis, we looked at. I mean, he was a man of peace. He tried to avoid conflict with his neighbors, and so he was an example in, in that particular way. But the real story begins to pick up with Esau and Jacob. They were twins, but they could hardly have been more different. Esau was the rough, outdoors type who liked to hunt and fish and, you know, do all those kinds of things and, and, and was his father's favorite. Right there is a red flag flying, right? As soon as you start having favorites amongst your children, uh, there's, there's trouble for, for the future. And then Jacob, he was the more refined city type, except, of course, they weren't living in a city. They were living in a tent village. But nevertheless, he was more refined, and, and he was his mother's favorite. Bad situation. Father has a favorite. Mother has a favorite. That's going to lead to conflict, as you might imagine. Esau was the elder son only by a few minutes. But it was enough to give him the birthright. But unfortunately, he was a foolish man who lived by the passion of the moment and was willing to sell his birthright for a bowl of red lentil soup because he was going to die, you see. He was so hungry. You know, you, you've all felt like, oh, I'm so hungry, I'm going to die. You, you don't really mean you're going to die. Uh, you're just really hungry. And, and certainly that was the way it was for him, but that's how little he valued his birthright. But Jacob had an eye to the future. Jacob wasn't living one moment at a time. He was looking down the road. Unfortunately, on his part, though, rather than trusting God for his future, he decided to take his future into his, whole, his own hands. And that's when he tricked his brother into selling him his birthright, or, or you could say enticed him into selling his birthright. And then he connived with his own mother, Rebecca, to, to steal the blessing, as it were, that Isaac would put upon the elder son. Then to save himself, Jacob had to flee because Esau was the rough outdoorsman. Jacob was more the refined tent dweller. I don't think Jacob was exactly... Did I say something wrong? Well, you know, it wasn't wrong. It was just unique. Really refined to live in tents. You know, that was your apartment. I'm speaking within the context. <laughs> And, and as a result, I, I don't believe Jacob was any kind of a wimp because as we're going to note a little bit later, he spent all night wrestling with the angel of the Lord. You can't exactly be a wimp to do that. But he was afraid of his brother Esau. So he fled. He fled from, he was living at the time somewhere around Beersheba. Beersheba is right here. Beersheba, it means the well of seven. And there is a well there today that you can go and visit, which is a well that can be traced back to Abraham in terms of the same hole in the ground. And he fled north, and we'll, we'll talk about a little adventure he had on the way right about in there, uh, actually right about in there. Uh, but he was fleeing up, the scripture tells us, all the way up to Haran. Well, Haran is in what was then called Paden Aram. It was, it was like Aram between the rivers. 
and Haran is in what we would today call the country of Syria. It's 500 miles from Beersheba to Haran. And he was not driving a Volkswagen. He was not on Air Palestine, you know. He had to walk the whole way. And one of his goals, of course, and the excuse for going there was, he didn't say, I'm afraid of Esau, so I'm fleeing. What he said was, I'm going to go find a wife. Because he knew his parents didn't want him to take a wife from amongst the Canaanites, which his brother Esau would do. And so he decided to go up where his own father got his wife. Isaac got his wife, Rebekah, from the family, the clan, up here in Haran. So that's what Jacob's going to do. He's going to go up. We don't know the route Jacob took. We know uh, that the route went up through here because we're going to talk about Bethel in a minute. And, and that's just north of Jerusalem up here. So he probably followed the ridge route, maybe going south underneath the Sea of Galilee, possibly going through Damascus. Most likely that would have been the main route, Damascus. And then uh, probably up to Kadesh and Hamath that way. He could have gone to Tadmor, but that's getting out on the edge of the desert out there. We don't know which route he took. But anyway, he, he took this journey. And if you figure 500 miles and let's just say comfortably you cover 25 miles in a day, you're, you're looking at 20 days if you push, push straight through. And of course, although he was a tent dweller, as some of you implied, he wasn't exactly a weakling. And so he could uh, hoof it uh, probably without much issue. Let me read the passage in Genesis chapter 28 that tells us about this departure of Jacob. Genesis 28 at verse 10. Jacob departed from Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. Now, I don't know, whenever I camp out, which is pretty rare, I usually take a pillow. <laughs> Stones have been less than desirable. But anyway, he, he rolls up a nice stone and and uh, puts his head on him. He had a dream, <laughs> no wonder. And behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants also will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the east to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, these are the words God spoke to Abraham. So you, you know the passage in Scripture which tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you see this in the Old Testament, particularly rel relative to this promise, because God keeps repeating the same promise, although centuries pass one after the other. 14, your descendants will be like, oh, I already read that one, 15, behold, I am with you and I will give you whatever uh, and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of, this, of that place Bethel, 
However, previously, the name of the city had been Luz. Bethel means house of El, God. And Luz means almond tree. And so it, it, it will be known as Bethel from that time on. The name Luz just drops out of the scripture anyway. So here he is, about 55 miles north of Beersheba. He's been on his road, on the road for about two days. And he camps there and he has this particular dream that God will give to him. So what he is doing, he is reinforcing to Jacob the promise he had given to Abraham, which he had repeated to Isaac. And now he is repeating to Jacob so Jacob would know that he is in the line of God's promise. Now think about this for a minute. Abraham's firstborn son was Ishmael. Isaac's firstborn son was Esau. Both of these men turned out to be men opposed to the promise. It was only the second son of each man who became the man of the promise. In the case of Abraham, Isaac. In the case of Isaac, Jacob. So what you have here is Abraham is promised the land and that his children would be as multitudinous as the stars of the heaven. And he has one son to carry on the promise. Isaac receives the same promise. He has one son to carry on the promise. At that rate, God would never be able to fulfill the promise. Because if you only have one son, and each son has only one son, well, you know how that goes. They tell us that when you, when you have children, you're supposed to have one to replace the father, one to replace the mother, one in case of accident, and one for posterity. So we had four kids. Actually, it's more like the Alliance Four and No More is, is kind of a motto that goes around. <laughs> but in the case of Jacob now, things are going to radically change. Jacob is going to make up for lost time. Because as you know, Jacob ends up marrying two wives, sisters. Not totally his fault, I'll, I'll, you know, you could say. He was strict in marrying the girl that he wasn't intending on marrying. How that happens is, uh, you know, a little odd. But. And then he also takes their two maids. So he has got four women. And by those four women, he is able to produce 12 sons. So now it's beginning to look like multitudes are possible at that uh, particular rate. That involves a period of 20 years. After 20 years, he begins to become tired of his father-in-law because his father-in-law is always trying to finagle him to do this, do that, and he seems like his father-in-law is always trying to rip him off. And so he decides he wants to leave. And just at the right moment, which is what God always does, God appears. God says to Jacob, I want you to go back to Canaan now. You've been in here long enough. <laughs> so notice how his, his impatience with his father-in-law reached ahead right at the moment God spoke to him. So he not only had a spiritual, God-driven motivation, but he also had a, a physical, emotional motivation as well, kind of all concurrent together. And so in obedience, he began his journey back to Canaan. Now, if you study the book of Genesis, you have to know this is, was no easy task because he's got four women, he's got many other kinds of servants, and he's got this crowd of kids, and he's got to ship the whole thing down to Canaan along with thousands and thousands of head of animals. And there were no cattle cars. You have to move them by foot at a mile per hour. 
That's 500 hours if you don't stop, which is not going to happen, of course. So it's a long journey. It's going to take weeks, even months, to move his whole clan down to Canaan. But he is obedient. God said to Abraham, go to Canaan. God says to Jacob, go to Canaan. Jacob obeys. But he has a concern because he knows that in the 20 years that's passed, his brother Esau still remembers what he had done to him. He stuck it to him. And so he's worried about, uh, J about Esau uh, being hostile. And so he prays and prepares. And you, you, if you've studied Genesis as we did <coughs> several years ago, you know that the preparation was a bit odd, you know, sending a certain group ahead and another group after that. I mean, he, his brother was going to encounter him group by group and rather than all at once. But it was the prayer part that made the big difference because God met him that night at a little spot otherwise unidentifiable on the Jabbok River. God met Jacob in the form of the angel of the Lord, with whom he wrestled all night and prevailed to the point where he, he asked the angel of the Lord for his blessing. And the angel of the Lord gave his blessing. And Jacob named the place Peniel, which means the face of God. In effect, he had seen the face of God. At least he had seen the face of the angel of the Lord. And we don't know exactly where Peniel was, I put a dot at it where it's thought to have been, right there. This is the Jabbok River, which cuts right down through the, what's called the Plateau of Gilead. This whole area here is called Gilead. It's a plateau that's kind of slightly crowned like this, and the Jabbok comes right down through the middle of the crown. So it kind of looks like, I've mentioned this before, like somebody who parts the hair in the middle. You know, That's the Jabbok coming down here. And it, it flows down and meets the Jordan here. And so there at that point, he had this encounter, and then afterwards, of course, he had a very friendly, unusually friendly encounter with his brother. What's interesting about Jacob was he didn't want to take any chances, however, after his brother had seemed to be very friendly to him and had done him no harm, and said, look, we'll even guard you. And he says, no, I don't need any guards. I mean, Esau had come to him with 400 men. Oh, it's okay, uh, you know, you guys go ahead and we'll, we'll just come along. We've got all these animals, you know, and so we can't move along very fast. And what is interesting is that um, Esau would end up living down here. Edom means the land of the red because Esau became known as Edom, the red man, because he was red and hairy when he was born. He sold his birthright for a red porridge and, you know, all kinds of red things showed up here. And if you've ever been there, the rose-red city of Petra is in the heart of this area as well, of Edom. But what Jacob did is he implied, I'll, I'll follow along. But does he follow along? No, no, no. He makes a hard right, goes down the Jabbok River, crosses the Jordan, goes up this, this is called the Wadi Faria. It's really the, in, in this whole area here, it's the only easy access up through the highlands. It's the only pass, you might say from the valley of the Jordan up through the highlands into this, into Samaria, what would later be known as Samaria up in here. It's really a, it's, it's really a canyon and, and a, a stream runs down through it uh, called the Faria and it goes out into the, into the Jordan here. Because you always have to be reminded of the fact that the Jordan River between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea drops from almost negative 700 feet to negative 1,300 feet. 
you know. So as it comes down here, by the time you get here, uh, you're, more than, you're about 1,000 feet below sea level or close to it. So you're not only climbing up from below sea level, but you're climbing up a range of hills here, which in, is often exceeds 2,000 up to 3,000. Well, not in that area, not 3,000, but over 2,000 feet. So you're coming up 3,000 vertical feet with all these animals. So you definitely want to find a pass. So he goes up the Wadi Faria, and here's Shechem, where he will camp. So he comes right up here. From here to here is about 25 miles as the crow flies, a little longer, of course, as you push by land as, as he did. At Shechem, he will be at the place where Abraham built the very first altar that he built in Canaan. When, when Abraham came down the first time, he built the first altar at Shechem. And so that is where Jacob will go with his family. And he will buy a plot of land there. And if you remember the story, this is only the second piece of land owned by the Hebrews in the entire land of Canaan. God has promised the whole land to them, but they own one little sl uh, small plot down in Hebron, and now they will own a small plot up in Shechem. At that rate, it's, they still wouldn't have Canaan <laughs> uh, today at, at that rate of, of purchase. Well, the story at Shechem, we won't go into the details of it, it was a tragic story. The, the stay there was not a good stay. Ended up with his eldest daughter being raped and uh, with his sons wiping out the entire male population of the town. So, uh, yeah, oops. <laughs> and, and leaving kind of a bad odor uh, around. Uh, but at that moment, God appears to him and says, this is where I want you. Go to Bethel. And so he goes from Shechem up here, and he follows the ridge route down, right, ridge route down here to Bethel. Where? Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paden Aram, and he blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you. I will give the land to your descendants after you. So God is renewing the promise to him. And, and from that we can, of course, extract one very obvious application, and that is God keeps renewing his promises to us as well. Even when we goof up, God renews his promise to hearts that are willing to listen. And if we're honest with ourselves, we admit that we goof up relatively routinely. And so did Jacob. If Jacob had exactly followed God's will and sought God's face all the way along the line, things would have been different. He probably never would have gotten in trouble with Esau. He probably would have ended up with just one wife, even though having that many kids might have made it a little tough. But nevertheless, uh, and, and the whole thing at Shechem wouldn't have happened. But God works with us wherever he finds us. So from Bethel, we're not told directly, but we can infer from later passages, from Bethel, he moved south. The next place that's mentioned in Scripture where he is located is the Valley of Hebron. Hebron is a town right here. Hebron is one of the highest towns in the entire land. It's at almost 3,000 feet above sea level, which, you know, to us who live in California, it's like, that's high. 
But, but in Israel, it's high because the highest mountain in, in the whole land is between three and 4,000 feet high. Mount Hermon up here, of course, which is not in Israel today, some of the slopes are, but the top of the mountain, which is up in the Lebanon-Syria area, is um, over 9,000 feet, which you know is a little bit higher, enough to get snow. But down at Hebron, he probably stayed in this valley here, which goes down to Beersheba, because Beersheba is, is the ancestral home along with Hebron. So this, this region, they're kind of southern Negevites uh, people. Negev is the word that means dry land, is roughly interpreted to mean south. And, and so they're southerners. That's why they always spoke Hebrew with a bit of a drawl. They live down here. And, and so he's living in this particular region down there. Jacob had 12 sons. His brother Esau, we discover, also had 12 sons. And those 12 sons became clan or tribal chiefs of the nation of what would be called Edom. So you have the Israelites coming from 12. You have the Edomites coming from 12. God has equally blessed the twins in that sense. What, 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 what you see from this is that God does not take the one who has rejected him and just throw him out the door. God will even fulfill his promises to him because God had said to Hagar, remember, when she had run away with Ishmael because Sarah got all so upset because Ishmael was giving Isaac a bad time and Abraham told Hagar to go away. God said to Hagar, from you a great nation will come through this son. So, so God gave to Esau a great nation as well. But from the pages of Genesis, we discover a very significant truth. And that is that the Hebrews fathered their own enemies. Abraham fathered Ishmael. Abraham later, after Sarah died, married again. You may, you may remember that. He married a younger woman, and her name was Keturah. And by her, he had six more sons, one of whom was named Midian. Of course, we know something about the Midianites, don't we? And uh, we, we know that Isaac fathered Esau. And from Esau came, you know, the Edomites. And Lot, you remember, Lot, through, his, through incest with his two daughters, fathered Moab and Ben-Ami. And so what you discover in the book of Genesis is that Israel was faced with the Ishmaelites, the Midianites, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, who were all cousins. And yet they were deadly enemies of Israel for almost the entire Old Testament period. And what we cannot more directly trace is the fact that Abraham had, of the five other sons, another one was named Joktam. And through him, he, there, there are three sons, or three groups, clans actually, that uh, were descended from him. And they became part of the Arab nation. And so, you know, Abraham followed, fathered the problems we're having today, or Israel's having today. Think about it for a minute. What's in the news? Terrorism. Struggle in Palestine. And you can trace it all the way back to the book of Genesis. To one man. Satan sought to thwart God's plan to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. God had said, I will make a multitude of people out of you, Abraham. This was before he had any kids at all. And the guy was, you know, not exactly young anymore, you know. He was 75 and uh, moving on. 
And God gave him, of course, uh, Isaac, and then Isaac had uh, Jacob. But Satan now picks it up wherever we're at. Just as God takes us wherever we are and works with us, Satan attacks us also wherever we are, manipulating whatever the circumstances are and whatever is in our own minds and hearts to try to thwart God's plan. So what does he do? He puts folly into the heart of Jacob. And Jacob, well, of course, you could blame it on his father. His father had a favorite son, was his brother. So Jacob also has a favorite son. His name is Joseph. And he makes it so obvious by giving to Joseph a special princely coat, which is, uh, doesn't go over so well from the, with the other sons, particularly since a bunch of them are older than Joseph. And then he puts folly in Joseph's heart. Joseph has dreams, and he goes around bragging about the fact that, you know, you guys are all going to bow down to me someday, you know, <laughs> even dad and mom. Well, you know, even if that's, that was a true dream, uh, probably he should have kept it to himself. And then God, uh, Satan put folly into the brothers' hearts to the point of willing to kill Joseph because they were so jealous of him and hated him so much. But what happened was, of course, God moved in those circumstances to have him sold into slavery. He would be taken down in Egypt. But the irony is, who carried him off there? His great uncle's kids, the Ishmaelites. It's like just one big ongoing family feud. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like the Hatfields and the McCoys. They can't even think up plots for television that are as convoluted as these. <laughs> That's why I wonder why they don't take more Bible themes and make good movies out of them, because they could really be, <laughs> I would think, box office breakers. But anyway, Joseph is carried off, and Jacob thinks his favorite son is dead, and he's devastated. However, he is very much alive in northern Egypt. And what we know about Joseph is that he twice rose from rags to riches. Now, you know, Horatio Alger and his stories about kids rising from rags to riches, but one person to do it twice, a bit unusual. But the second time, of course, he really hits a, a gold mine and he becomes prime minister of the whole land of Egypt, second only to the Pharaoh, and even in some sense greater than the Pharaoh because the Pharaoh gave him all the administrative duties while he went off and was chairman of the board, you know. He, he let Joseph be the chief executive officer of the country. And through God's wisdom and God's power, he rescues Egypt from total disaster. Joseph is carried from way up in the north part uh, where he had actually been sold. He's carried by these people all the way down and sold into the land of Egypt. This is the delta, as you see, the Nile Delta here, which is where we get the word. It's from this delta that we call river deltas deltas because of the shape. It's the shape of the Greek letter delta, and that's the origin of the uh, term. Yeah, except it's upside down. From the Greek's point of view, it's... From the Greek's point of view, it's right side up. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, so he's carried off here in Egypt. He rises to the position of prime minister and is able to rescue the land uh, from the famine that sweeps over the land. And when we studied Genesis, we talked about the mechanism by which there could be a seven-year 
famine. And we, we won't go into all of that again, but it has to do with Ethiopia, <laughs> as strange as that might seem. But that's where you get the primary source of the water that flows through the Nile, is out of Ethiopia. And, and if the monsoons cease there, which monsoons can do, and they know this in India, when, when the monsoons cease, India is in big trouble. They can also cease in the Ethiopian or the Horn of Africa, and when they do, the Nile just becomes a, more of a trickle than anything. And so the seven-year famine uh, is, follows upon seven years of plenty, and the plenty, of course, is used to store up. This gives Joseph the opportunity to invite his family now to come from Canaan over here because the famine was evidently region-wide. The drought was evidently region-wide. And so the family moved from this Hebron Beersheba area over here into Egypt, 70 souls altogether, 70 people, Jacob and all of his kids and grandkids and so forth. Uh, they move over here into what was called the land of Goshen, which is the eastern side of the Nile Delta. The Nile Delta historically has been a very fertile area because under normal conditions, the Nile River floods every single year, and that flooding not only rejuvenates the soil, but provides water. The, the climate there is extremely sunny. It almost never rains in Egypt. I, I, we've mentioned this to you before, that when we visited Cairo, for example, you look at the trees, the trees are all dirty. The trees have dirt on them because it never rains to wash them off. When I say never, I don't mean absolutely never since the dawn of time, but, but you know, regularly it doesn't rain uh, there. Uh, but nevertheless, this is a, is a very fertile area, and so, so that's where the uh, people of Israel would make their home. And it would seem like, okay, God has promised Canaan to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants, but now the whole family is living in Egypt. And what would, it seem, what would make it even seem less likely that God's promise would be fulfilled is the fact that they were in Egypt for over 400 years. That'd be like God making a promise to Christopher Columbus, and we still haven't seen it fulfilled yet. You know, kind of, almost, kind of a deal. What, what it helps us to understand is God's promises are sure, but they may not coincide with our time frame. At that particular time, Egypt was in what is called the second intermediate period. And, and you find on here, uh, if you come down on your list uh, for Egypt here, you have the early dynastic period, the old kingdom, the nomarchy, the middle kingdom, then the Hyksos era. The Hyksos era is also known as the second intermediate period, meaning intermediate between the great kingdoms. Egypt in its early history had three great kingdoms. The old kingdom, which is the most glorious of all, that's when all the great pyramids were built, and then that fell apart. And then a middle kingdom, which was kind of feudalistic but, and not as glorious as the first, then that collapsed. And then you have the second intermediate or Hyksos period, and then they finally get through that into the new kingdom, which is the period we'll be talking about here for a moment. So we're talking about the period from about 1800 to 1550 as BC as the uh, period of time. At that moment, when Jacob and his family moved into Egypt, Egypt was not a great power in the region. Egypt was very feudalistic. 
the Pharaoh was kind of like just more equal than the others. But the lords within the land, if they didn't want to do what the Pharaoh wanted them to do, they just ignore him. And this is the period in which the Hebrews were most favored. And it's the period when there are living in Egypt a group of people. Now, we know the name. We know something about them. We don't know a lot of great detail. And let me tell you why. Much of what you know, let me point this out. This is an extremely unique book. Not only because it's the Word of God, but because nowhere in ancient history will you find a running history of a nation like you find here. Nowhere. You go to the ancient Sumerians, the ancient Babylonians, the ancient Egyptians. All you have is little sketchy details that you can kind of ferret out from dust it all off, you know, or read it on the wall. And, and nobody sat down and said, oh, let me tell you the history of ancient Egypt, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. No. You just have to piece it together from a snippet here, a snippet there, a snippet somewhere else. You uncover a, a ruin here and a statue there and a hieroglyph over there. And, and there is no running history of any of these nations. So the Hyksos were known from the Egyptian hieroglyphics to have been a people there. But exactly where they came from, we don't know. They were Asiatics of some sort. They're sometimes called the Shepherd Kings. What we do discover is that they apparently really only occupied Lower Egypt. This is called Lower Egypt because it's lower down at the end of the river. And from Memphis here, which was one of the primary cities of ancient Egypt, Memphis, from Memphis to the Delta, this was the area that the Hyksos primarily ruled. They had some influence up the river. Uh, the map doesn't go as far as uh, Thebes, which was the upper river capital. But the Egyptians had a certain degree of, what should we call it, uh, semi-independence in, in the more southern part of the country. And so the Hyksos were here for, we, we don't know really how long, 200, 300 years maybe. And that was the time when Israel was invited into the land and were favorable to the Egyptian authorities, the Hyksos authorities, and conditions were, were pretty good for them. However, in Exodus, the first chapter, you read these words, a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. The memory of Joseph meant nothing to him. And this is generally assumed to mean that we're looking at the first true pharaoh after the Hyksos were totally eradicated from the land. And now you have the Egyptians fully in charge of their own land again, reunited. And who are these remaining Hyksos? Hebrews. Let's enslave them. So the Hebrews became enslaved to the new Egyptian power. And the Hebrew slaves were used to build monuments. There's no culture in history that is more monumental than the Egyptians. They loved to build monuments. They built the biggest monuments ever built in human history in the ancient period, in the Great Pyramids. But that's a thousand years earlier in time than the period we're talking about now. But they were still building big monuments. Uh, they will build statues that are 50 feet tall, and they'll carve tombs that go half a mile into the, into the canyon, you know, and, and totally covered with artwork. And so there was lots for Hebrews to do as slaves in building cities and tombs and, and monuments. This period of time, which is the greatest period of time in Egyptian history in terms of political power, is known as the New Kingdom or Empire. If you look on your list, that's the period of time that runs from the mid-16th century, about 1550 B.C., all the way down to about the millennial break. 
And this is the Egypt that was ruled as the empire of the new kingdom. Everything in the light green. So all the way from central Sudan today through Egypt and all the way up to the southern border of the Hittite empire. The Hittites occupied Asia Minor. And the Hittites and the ancient Egyptians were constantly fighting with each other. And so Palestine was under Egyptian domination during this, all the Canaanites. So here are the Hebrews. They're in the land of Egypt, not in the land of Canaan. And now they're slaves. What chance is it that they will ever fulfill God's promise? In fact, there's a big blank there, you probably have noticed, between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. And in that big blank, it almost seems like the Israelites forgot who their God was. And so here is this great, grandiose power. It's kind of a long, narrow territory that was ruled. But they were the greatest political, military power of the time and the most wealthy. Gold flowed in Egypt. I mean, Egypt mined its own gold in many places. And gold flowed everywhere. All you have to do is look at the monuments that have been dug up and these gold masks and... Well, King Tut, you remember famous old King Tut who lived in the 14th century before Christ? When he dug up his sarcophagus, the inner sarcophagus in which his mummy was, half-inch thick solid gold coffin. Oh, you know. They had a lot of wealth there. Four centuries they lived in Egypt. And who was living in Canaan? The Canaanites, as they had been before Abraham ever arrived. Various tribes and clans, generically known as the Amorites or Canaanites. During the two centuries that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob actually lived in the land, they never possessed by purchase or by squatting more than just a teeny portion of that land. It had been promised to them but the promise had not been realized during their lifetimes. And so what we see here is the essence of faith. What is true faith? Believing the Word of God no matter what. There's no phrase in Scripture like this, but come hell or high water. <laughs> Believing the Word of God. And that is where, with all their faith, their, their failures, their warts, whatever else you want to say, these three men hung in there. The fulfillment of the promise would not come until they were long molded away in the grave. It would only come because God called an old man out of the desert by a flaming bush. He said, old man, I've got a job for you. I want you to go down and bring my people out of Egypt. And God appeared to Moses miraculously. Think about it. Moses, the, the story of Moses. Moses had been rescued from infanticide so miraculously that he was raised in the house of the Pharaoh. The very Pharaoh said, kill all the Jews, all the baby boys. He's raising one of them <laughs> in his midst. It's like some member of PETA who goes around telling you, don't, don't, uh, you know, kill animals who buys his wife a mink coat. You know, it's just, just it doesn't go together. And, and he's raising this Hebrew, and, and this Hebrew is a prince with even the possibility of becoming Pharaoh. Now, did God want to release the Israelites by having 
Moses become a Pharaoh? Probably not. But did God want Moses to do it his way? Probably not either. And so at 40, Moses is run out of the country because he decides to take matters into his own hand and kill an Egyptian who's beating up on a Jew, and then the Jews don't understand that. And Hebrews, they should call them. They're not Jews yet. And marries the daughter of a Midianite priest and settles down as a shepherd for 40 years. Now, most of us, by the time we've worked at our job 40 years, it's time to retire, you know. And yet he has yet to come to his greatest calling. So he's 80 years old when he sees this bush empire. And God speaks to him. Well, clock is running faster than I am, so we'll have to pick it up by looking at that account next week. It's, it's a well-known account, but seeing how that plays into the, the evolution of God's presence through his people in the land of Canaan.